For too long, we thought we could bend the world to suit just us, the human race. No more. As we face the challenges of climate change, inequality and environmental degradation, we know that to simply sustain is not enough. We need to regenerate. A regenerative future is one where people and our planet flourish, hand in hand in the long term. At the RSA, we're building a programme that brings people and ideas together to show how this could look, act and feel. Join the regeneration. Visit the rsa.org forward slash regenerative dash futures. The pandemic has brought home to all of us the importance of the public services we sometimes take for granted. Not just the NHS, but schools, local councils, the police and prison service have all faced huge challenges keeping the show on the road. And clear leadership has been crucial to this task. Now, more than ever, our public services need great head teachers, chief constables, great prison governors and hospital directors. But what makes for great leadership in the public sector? How do you make sure your organisation is delivering for the public and not squandering hard-earned taxes? How do you handle a crisis or navigate the complex relationship with an ever-changing government? I'm Justin Russell and I work alongside the justice system as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Probation. I've spent my life working with and learning from inspirational leaders who have done all of these things and more. In this special series for Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to just some of those who have survived and thrived at the top to find out how they did it and what they can teach you. So join me for a lesson in leadership. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Justin Russell. My first guest is someone who's been a leader his whole life. Born and educated in Scotland, he spent most of his career in England and has recently returned to the Northeast. He's held every senior leadership position in education, from primary school head teacher to his current role as vice chancellor and chief executive of the University of Sunderland. He's worked with government ministers of all political parties, led local councils and schools inspectorates, and has been knighted for his services to education. Who better to start this series of podcast interviews on lessons in leadership than Sir David Bell to talk about his lifetime of leadership? Welcome, David. Great to talk to you again. Thanks very much, Justin. So, David, in this series, we're going to look at what great leaders do in in three key areas. How they set a strategic direction or a vision for their organisation. How great leaders engage with staff, often thousands of staff, to get them behind that vision. And then how do you make sure that people deliver real results for the public or the people that are using the services you're responsible for? You've had over 30 years experience of doing all three of those things. But let's start at the beginning. You were born in Glasgow. You studied history and philosophy at Glasgow University. You then did teacher training at Jordan Hill and were then a primary school teacher in Glasgow and then in Essex. And then you were a head teacher by the very young age of 28. Did you decide early on that you were a leader, not a follower, do you think? I don't think I ever made that conscious choice, Justin. I was very fortunate to be appointed as a deputy head teacher. I'm even younger than 28. And I suppose that gave me a sense of possibility. 
I was also very fortunate to work with an excellent head teacher when I first moved to Essex. And I like to think that's a theme of my career, working alongside really impressive leaders and trying to learn from them as I go, at the same time as shaping my own approach to leadership. Do you ever regret not spending more time at the chalk face as a classroom teacher before you moved into into leadership? Yes, I, I suppose I'm still a teacher at heart. And occasionally people will comment on my teacherly style. And I think that's a compliment rather than a, an insult. Yes, I did enjoy the, the, the cut and thrust of the classroom. And indeed, being a primary school teacher is a wonderful privilege because here you have, you know, 30 children at a formative stage in life and you have the chance that you hope to be an influence for for good. But I suppose about leadership more generally, you like to think that you can have an influence on a wider scale, whether that's across a whole school or, in my case, across a whole local authority. And even when you get to a national government role, you hope that you can influence for the better. I should say, though, that having spent the last 10 years as a university vice chancellor, it's been good to be back in a single institution because you feel as if you can put your arms around it and you really can influence what's going on in a way that's perhaps less easy to do when you're in a national role. So after your experience as a head teacher, you then spent 12 years in local government, first at Newcastle and then as chief executive of Bedfordshire County Council. How was local government as a place to cut your leadership teeth? I really enjoyed my time in local government. It was my first experience of working in a political environment, so that was a good education for me. I was very fortunate uh, to be surrounded by really good people, uh, both my fellow officers in local government, as well as some great councillors. And I really enjoyed working in local government, and I think that much of what I learned there about managing in a political context proved to be very useful when I moved into central government. It wasn't the same, of course, but the skills and I hope some of the approaches that I adopted in local government working with elected members helped me when I worked with national politicians. Do you think you started to develop a sort of leadership philosophy over this period? Were there particular leadership theories you bought into or or people that you looked up to? I'm a voracious reader, as I think you know, Justin, so I wouldn't say that I'm influenced by any one school of leadership. Perhaps more influential on me is all the many biographies that I read, and not just of leaders. I find the lives of others incredibly interesting, and there's so much I think you could learn from the experiences of others, including those that have led either in um, institutions like the ones that I've worked or also those who've worked in very different places. So I think I've probably had a rather eclectic approach to leadership. And I would also emphasise, Justin, that I don't think that it's ever the finished article. I think you, as a good leader, have to keep, keep on learning. And I like to think that I've been able to do that. One thing that I was able to do, and and you were able to do it at the same time as me, was to become a Harkness Fellow, spending time a year in the United States. And that was a really formative period in my professional life, because I think it gave me a real sense of policy work and working on a larger scale. 
and working with other people from other disciplines in a very systematic way. So all of that was formative. And I think I can point to a number of examples in my life where I think that was a really important moment, even if I can't explain exactly how it influenced my leadership approach. Mm. I mean, you mentioned that you're a great reader, and I, I know that you are. What, what do you think of leadership books? Is leadership something you can learn from books? Were there books that particularly influenced you apart from the biographies? I think you can learn from leadership books. One that has been particularly interesting that I've read in recent times is something called Managing in the Grey. And essentially, it makes a point that when you're a leader, all the easy decisions should be made by other people. So in other words, if you're making all the easy decisions, you're not delegating or devolving enough to people who should be responsible for things that they can decide. And the things that come to you as a leader are very, very rarely susceptible to a simple yes, no, black or white answer. And I thought that was really quite an interesting insight. And that book also goes on to suggest some approaches that you might take when you're managing in the grey. And as I've been saying to people recently, it feels to me that life and management is all about, uh, and leadership is all about managing trade-offs, that there's very rarely an answer that will satisfy everything and everyone. But the best you do is to make decisions on the basis of the evidence and the information you have at the time by hopefully consulting as many people and then going for it. And that's, I think, managing in the grey. So that's been a helpful and influential book recently. But I can think of others over my years in leadership positions, Justin, that have also been equally influential at a particular moment. So later in the series, I'm hoping to talk to Michael Barber about the role of leaders in delivery, and in particular, how hands-on leaders should be in getting into the detail of delivery. What's your views on that? Oh, that's a really great question. I think it depends. (laughs) I think the leader who is strategic all the time is in danger of divorcing themselves from the reality of what's happening in their organization or institution. Indeed, I think it was Michael Barber himself once said that nobody ever gets sacked on the basis of a poor strategy. Usually, it's about the execution of strategy, i.e. delivery, where people fall down. So you have to be willing and able to engage in delivering. You have to know enough about it in an organization to know whether things are going well or not. On the other hand, it's a real danger to become the obsessive on the detail where you will not make any decision yourself without having every possible implication considered. And worse than that, you wouldn't let anyone else make a decision because you're all over the detail. So I think it's one of those things that you learn as you develop as a leader when you have to intervene more in the detail, when you can intervene less in the detail. And also, I think that is related to the people that you have around you. Some people, perhaps, you might want to scrutinize a bit more carefully, provide a bit more detailed guidance on what they're doing. Others that you perhaps have a different approach to. So I think it's just about being sensitive to the circumstances. But you cannot be all over strategy and nowhere on detail. But you can't be you know, in the depths of the detail and not thinking about the bigger picture either. What what do you think are the warning signs that you may be getting too much in the detail? Partly, I guess it's about building trusting relationships with your deputies and the people that you manage so they can give you 
honest feedback? How, how have you been able to encourage that honesty? I think that's really important, isn't it? Making sure that you are not surrounded by the yes people who spend all their time agreeing with you. Equally, you don't want people who are just disagreeing with you all the time and are not actually on your wavelength and don't share your values and your aspirations. So I think a leader must be constantly vigilant on this one. If you think that people are really just wanting to agree with you for the sake of agreeing with you, you need to say to them, sorry, folks, speak as you find. Tell me what you really think. So I think you have to keep pressing very, very hard on that. How you know if you're too much in the detail? Well, sometimes you can see it in the the eyes of those that you're dealing with who obviously think you're too much in the detail. And you've got to be careful that you you don't overindulge in, in that respect. But I think over the years, I've got that balance just about right. But I, I, as I often say about leadership generally, Justin, I'm the wrong person to ask. Ask the lead rather than the leader what they think of my leadership. What do you think they would say about your leadership style if I was to go back and ask them? I think they would say that I'm pretty open. I'm friendly. I, I don't think I have any airs and graces about me. I try to be pragmatic I'm not ideological. I am a great believer in the, you know, what works is what counts. And I like to think that I create an environment where people are allowed to flourish. And indeed, one of the key tasks of leadership for me has always been trying to encourage and develop those around me. Because, you know, the stories you hear of people who leave organizations and then they fall apart because the leader's gone, that's a failure of leadership. And you always want to think that once you've left an organization, you've handed it on in a good shape to the person that succeeds you. So it's really important, I think, that you build the capability and the capacity of people around you if you're going to be a successful leader and leave a positive legacy. So going back to your career in in 2002, when you were in your early 40s, you stepped onto the, the national stage for the first time as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Schools, succeeding Mike Tomlinson. Ofsted had a budget of many millions of pounds and over a 1,000 inspectors, and you had a profound impact, I guess, on tens of thousands of schools and potentially hundreds of thousands of teachers. Were you conscious of having that, that profile, that ability to use your voice to change things? Well... Our two daughters were at school at the time I was appointed as chief inspector. And I remember our older daughter saying, thank you, Dad, you have just become the most unpopular man in England and everyone's going to hate me as a result. I don't think that happened. And fortunately, through no interference from me, neither of the children's schools were actually inspected when I was chief inspector. But I kept well away from the detail of that. It was one of those interesting moments because I was conscious that not only was I stepping into a national role for the first time ever, I was actually stepping into one of the more publicly exposed national roles because the chief inspector, unlike other public officials in central government, is expected to have a public profile, is expected to be speaking out, is expected to be on the media. Now, I've always been pretty comfortable with that kind of public exposure in all jobs that I've done. So that was less of an issue for me. But I was very sensitive to the impact 
that I was having and, of course, the inspectors of Ofsted were having. And I always thought that, particularly, Justin, when I had to read the papers and eventually sign off schools that went into special measures. And it always struck me as a very weighty responsibility as the chief inspector that I knew that the decision that I would finally make would have a profound impact, would have a profound impact, obviously, on people's careers and professional life, but it would also have a profound impact on children or young people in schools. And that was a really important moment when you thought, goodness, these are really significant decisions. And it's something that I've always tried to keep in mind when I'm making serious and sensitive decisions. What would it be like if I was on the receiving end of this decision? And that can be the same with a difficult personnel issue that you have to manage. It can be the same when you're dealing with perhaps an institution or part of an institution that has to close. Just put yourself in the shoes of the person on the receiving end or the people on the receiving end of it, because I think it does help you shape the way you come to decisions if you're trying to be as sensitive as you can to those that will be receiving them. Yes, and as you say, Ofsted puts a heavy emphasis on on leadership and the quality of leadership in its schools inspections, and you must have seen many, many head teachers in action and, and seen many, many reports on their performance. What what do you think makes for a good head teacher? I think a good head teacher is somebody who knows the pupils or students in their schools very well and understands the job of the school to meet those students' needs. And I start with the students because, you know, there have been times, haven't there, in education where, you know, we've been so focused on leadership and management of institutions and the structures and the systems and all of that's important. But I always think, let's remember that first and foremost, schools are there to educate uh, children and young people and uh, head teachers. That is their primary responsibility to make their institutions as good as they can be in that task. I think one thing that struck me very much at Austed, and I suppose I'd seen it anyway previously, but it came into sharper relief, was there was no single approach to being a really good head teacher. You know, people had very different approaches and styles. And I think one of the principles of Austed, which I think is still there, it's not about having an ideological approach to a particular method or style. It's about achieving the best outcomes for students. And there are a number of ways of doing that. And maybe that just speaks to my non-ideological, pragmatic approach to life generally, Justin, that I, I think you have to look at the outcomes and the results that you achieve rather than being obsessed about the particular ways that those are achieved. And I think Ofsted and my time at Ofsted brought that very much into to the fore of my mind. And then moving on, after about three and a half years, I guess, at, at Ofsted, you, uh, the poacher turned gamekeeper, I suppose. You came into government straight at the top of the Department for Education and Skills as the permanent secretary at the relatively young age for PermSec of 47. What were your initial impressions of the, of the civil service? Well, that was a bit of a happen chance moment because I had already begun a conversation about doing a second term as chief inspector of schools. And then the Whitehall musical chairs started to move and the opportunity to become the permanent secretary 
came there. I genuinely never thought that that would be something that I would do. But again, I loved it. I mean, I had an incredibly happy six years. Um, It wasn't always straightforward. There were some moments in government, but I really, really enjoyed it. And I began with and I left with an enormous respect for the British civil service. And, 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 you know, I really do despair when people attack the civil service. It's not perfect. No institution is perfect. But we really have some of the best people in our country who have given you know, themselves to serve the country in positions of responsibility at all levels of the civil service. So I was very impressed and I continue to be very impressed in my whole time there and have been since. So it was a great honour. I consider it still a great honour and privilege to have been the permanent secretary, even though I wasn't a lifer in the civil service. And over that period of six years, you worked for, I think, four different secretaries of state, yes. um, three different prime ministers, governments of both political parties. I think the secretary of state that you probably had the longest relationship was Ed Balls, who Gordon Brown brought in as his secretary of state. And he brought in quite a radical new approach to the function of the department. The, the name of it changed to the Department for Children's Schools and Families, He was keen to take a much more holistic view of children. The children's plan was published for the first time. Every Child Matters became the brand. And listening to a a recent podcast of a conversation that you had with him, it it felt that you were pretty aligned with him around that vision that he had for the department. Because one of the questions I'm interested in is, how, how do you negotiate that leadership space when you're working with a high profile Minister, how do you decide who sets the vision on which aspects of your department? I think that's an interesting question in in relation to the role of a senior civil service leader. You have to understand ultimately that the Secretary of State is responsible for setting the direction of the department. And your role, as you say, is to negotiate the best way in which the civil service both provides advice to the Secretary of State and helps the Secretary of State to achieve their objectives. And I think that's always worth remembering that the civil service doesn't have an independent life or policy, or it shouldn't have an independent life or policy. It is there to serve the elected government of the day. Um, I found it very straightforward to work with Ed and the kind of um, approach that he wanted to take. That wasn't about being capital P political. It was about me serving him as the Secretary of State and wanting to help him realise his ambitions. And I think we, we got a lot done in that time. I would also say that I think we got a lot done in the periods of time that I spent with the other Secretaries of State. But of course, the time with Ed was longest. And of course, it was the latter part of the Labour government in office. So I then had the privilege, and it was a privilege, to be there as governments changed, and governments changed after quite a long period of time. One of my experiences as Secretaries of State is that they vary quite a bit in how much they want to get involved and hands-on in the actual running and structure of the department in terms of people that they approve or disapprove of at a senior level or the way that they want the department organised. Was that was that an issue for you? Did you feel sometimes you were having to fend them off a bit in terms of your own 
internal administrative arrangements. I never thought it was about fending them off, but I think it's not unreasonable for secretaries of state to raise with permanent secretaries concerns they have about perhaps the progress that's been made about uh, in, in a policy area, or indeed at times about individual civil servants where perhaps the relationship hasn't worked or the Secretary of State is not confident they're getting the right advice or delivery is not happening quickly enough. I usually found that through conversation, you could resolve these matters. And I think in the end, Secretaries of State, my experience with Secretaries of State was that they expected you to act but they respected that ultimately the line management of civil servants was the responsibility of the permanent secretary. And I think that's the way it should be. And of course, you have a space to negotiate with um, special advisors and policy advisors that have been appointed by the Secretary of State. And perhaps unlike some, I always think those kinds of people were a good thing in government because I think they helped to, in a sense, protect the political neutrality of the civil service, but they also gave you a good bridgehead to the political life of the Secretary of State alongside the policy life of the department. And then in 2010, there was a change of government. Michael Gove came in as Secretary of State and the department went through another change of name. It went back to being the Department for Education and and quite a radical change of vision as well towards a sort of more traditional focus, I guess, on school standards and on traditional curriculum and some structural reforms like free schools. And Michael Gove, I think, asked the department to stop doing some of the things it had been doing previously. How difficult is it to lead a staff team through such a radical change of vision for the organisation that you are that you are leading? Well, I was very fortunate that both Ed Balls in 29 and the early part of 2010 as the sitting Secretary of State and Michael Gove as the shadow Secretary of State allowed me to have conversations that you should have in the run-up to an election. So Ed said, look, I'm absolutely happy. It's your constitutional duty to have those conversations. And I don't expect to hear anything about them. I just like to know when they're happening. Um, to his credit, said, you know, I recognise these are confidential conversations and and I will not use the information inappropriately. And, and actually, both of them were absolutely true to their word. And that helped me enormously. I was able to then share with the department the ideas that Michael had as the shadow secretary of state and what he would want to do. And indeed, I remember vividly just a few, I th- actually, I think it was the day of the election it was called in 2010. Michael and I happened to be together in one of those pre-election conversations. And he gave me a sort of action list and said, look, if I am going to become the secretary of state, these are the things that are my priorities. And I was pleased that when I finally left the department in the December of 2011, I was able to give that list back to Michael and say, actually, we did the things that you wanted us to do. Now, the question of how did the civil service react and respond proved to be more difficult than I thought it would be, to be frank. I thought I had done, and the senior team at the department had done a lot of work to prepare the department for a change of administration, and as you described, Justin, a change of direction. But I think I underestimated the extent to which civil servants had become attached to the policy areas that they had been working 
on under the previous Secretary of State and indeed the previous administration. Now, that wasn't about them being political. It wasn't about them saying, well, we are supporting the Labour Party as opposed to the Conservative Party or the Liberal Democrats. It really nothing to do with that in the main. It was people had become very attached and very much aligned to the policies that they were developing and they had worked with Secretary of State and ministers on. So to be told we're coming out of that area altogether was quite a shock for some people. And I think I underestimated that. And I I reflect ruefully on that. The other thing that happened, Justin, which was a disaster, to be blunt, was that there were people, I don't know how many, but there were people who were leaking out of the department after the 2010 election. And that was, in my view, politically motivated. And that was incredibly damaging. It was very damaging to the standing of the civil service generally because it just gave the impression that the civil service was politicised and wanted to undermine the elected government. And also it was damaging just at the personal relationships level because, you know, not unreasonably, ministers thought, well, can we trust the officials? Can we trust you as the permanent secretary? And I did say to the department on more than one occasion We are doing ourselves no service whatsoever when it comes to all of that. Now, I'm not sure I could have ever prevented that happening, Justin, but I think there was a kind of confluence of factors that made some of those early months with the new Secretary of State rather bumpy. I mean, it's an interesting issue about how sort of emotionally engaged and passionate civil servants become about the policies that they are working on. I mean, traditionally, it used to be felt that they should stand apart a bit and be dispassionate. Gus O'Donnell, when he was Cabinet Secretary, I think urged people to inject a bit of passion, said it was important for people to be passionate about the areas they were working on if they were to deliver. How do you get that balance right between passion for delivery, but also a recognition that the goalposts may change again at a later date? Well, you might say that I didn't get that balance right, Justin, and I think I'd probably put my hands up on that one. I think Gus O'Donnell was absolutely right. We don't want desiccated advice from civil servants who don't really care one way or the other which way it goes. So I think it is important that civil servants do feel aligned and feel that they have got commitment to the policies. But, you know, the core responsibility of the civil service is to serve the government of the day. And I thought we'd made that message very clear, but perhaps we didn't emphasise it enough. I, I think there's also something, Justin, about a government that's been in power for quite a long time. So the Labour government, of course, had been in power since 1997, and there was inevitably going to be some difficulties and transition. And I took some comfort from the fact that people said that it was quite similar in 1979, when the Conservatives came into power under Mrs Thatcher. And to some extent, maybe we've seen it, although it's the same party, we've maybe seen it in 2019 as well. So I think there's an inevitable period of turbulence if you've had one approach in government or one party in power or one particular branch of a party in power for quite a long time, and then you get a change. But as I say, I I reflect ruefully still on things that I might have done differently. I'm not sure what those things are, but I probably should have done some things differently to have um, effected an even smoother transition. Hmm. I mean, it, you know, as, as you've reflected, it wasn't always plain sailing at the department. As with every government department, there were 
regular crises along the way. Thinking about your your term at the department, there was the baby P case. There was issues around marking of SATs. There were issues under Michael Gover on building schools for the future program and some of the details that were published around that. What lessons did you learn about leading in a in a crisis? Yes, well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned building schools for the future because, of course, that was a major problem very early on after the coalition came into power in 2010. I remember sitting on the Sunday night in the department with Michael just as we were perhaps in the depths of the crisis and saying to him, although you might not feel it at the time, um, actually this will pass. And before you know it, another Secretary of State will be in the firing line. And actually, that's what happens. And that's what did happen with Michael, and that's what happened with the department. But when you're in the midst of those crises, it is really important as the permanent secretary to be visible and to be out there in the department. I always try to maintain a calm disposition. I didn't rush around looking as if I was a bit of a headless chicken. I tried to look smart and try to just give out an aura of confidence, not not invincibility, but I think when you're in a crisis, Justin, leaders, quite rightly, should set an example to those around them. And I think one other thing that people might say about me is I'm generally a very calm person. I don't get aerated. I don't get excited. I usually remain focused, even in the midst of a crisis. And I think that proved to be very helpful during not just the building schools for the future crisis, but in other situations that I faced in my working and professional life. So just moving to the the final part of your career, the last 10 years or so, you became Vice-Chancellor at Reading University in 2012. So having started your career at one end of the educational timeline with primary school children, you have ended your career working in the university sector at Reading and and now at uh, Sunderland. Again, I think, as you said earlier, returning to localities, but also organisations with a a global reach as well, and increasing emphasis on universities as income-generating bodies and needing to to raise the income. And have you been conscious of that focus on the bottom line becoming higher profile, really, within the things you're expected to do? Yes, I think that's absolutely right, uh, Justin, as indeed is the global reach of universities. When I was um, leaving or thinking of leaving Whitehall, because I knew that I wasn't going to be a, a career civil servant, I was thinking, well, whatever else you say about Whitehall, it's an incredibly interesting and stimulating place to work. Where am I going to go next that might be equally interesting and stimulating? And I'd always had an interest, obviously, um, professionally in universities. And again, um, I've been very fortunate that they have turned out to be exactly that. They are interesting, stimulating places to work. They have a global reach. They they are small towns, sometimes large towns in themselves, universities. And of course, you get the chance to influence the lives of students as well as localities. So it's been incredibly interesting. It has been perhaps the most commercially orientated part of my career because universities have to be financially sustainable as well as educationally sustainable. And all of that's been really good. And for me, it's it's also been nice to come back to the northeast of England, having spent 10 years here, and to come to a university and a city which I think is really on the up 
And it's very, very exciting to be part of that wider city regeneration here in Sunderland at the moment. Mm. Just some final reflections, David. Many thanks for talking to us about your career and the lessons that you've learnt from it. Just final thoughts on for, for budding leaders of the future. What do you think your advice would be on, on your key lessons in leadership? I think I might have a couple of things to observe. First of all, you've got to be who you are. I mean, you rightly asked about influences on my career, and it is important to be open to be inf- to influences, but as a leader, it's got to be the person that you are. And I know that, you know, the overused word of being authentic as a leader, but there is a there is an important truth there that there's no point in pretending to be something that you're not. And certainly if you go for an interview, never pretend to be something that you're not because you'll be found out. So I, I like to think that I am as me as a person is very much me as a leader. That's the first thing I would say to leaders in the making. The second thing is that never stop learning. Never think that leadership is a finished article. And then perhaps finally, Justin, when people ask me, what's my secret of success? I'll often say hanging around. I've been hanging around as a leader since uh, 1988 when I took up that primary headship. And uh, the good news is I still love it. I love the buzz and the excitement and ultimately the privilege of being a leader in in an organisation. Many thanks for that. Some great reflections there, some great tips for future leaders. Very good to talk to you today. And good luck with your latest leadership challenge. Many thanks, David. Thank you very much, Justin. A pleasure to speak to you. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 